1: My name is Nathan Hobson. I'm a host for the New Books in East Asia podcast series, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about Japan at the Crossroads, Conflict and Compromise After Ampol by Nick Kapoor. Uh, This book is out from Harvard University Press this month, August 2018. Uh, It's an ambitious look at the transformations of Japanese society after the massive protests against renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. In 1960. And that security treaty uh, is what is abbreviated as Ampo in the title. Uh, Ampo was renewed despite 15 months of protest involving an estimated 30 million people in Japan. That's about a third of the total population at the time. The treaty was rammed through by the government of Kishinobusuke. But Kapoor argues that the aftermath fundamentally changed Japan in complex ways that we really haven't fully uh, reckoned with. His narrative begins with political changes, both at home and in the U.S.-Japan relationship, but the book, in a very holistic way, uh, addresses the economy, society, the labor movement, literature, the arts, mass media, conservative establishment, the police, the courts, and even the revitalization of right-wing forces like the Yakuza. Kapoor argues that the sometimes violent and ultimately failed protests against Ampo helped to delegitimize extra-parliamentary protest and ushered a turn toward the depoliticization of public society. Uh, To my mind, most provocatively, uh, he challenges the idea of the so-called 1955 system of one-party conservative rule under the Liberal Democratic Party. And he argues instead that 1960 was the real landmark moment in the creation of a broader Ampo system, or post-Ampo system, I guess, that is the book's subject. Okay. So, uh, Nick, thanks for uh, being here. And I I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and about the project, um, how you ended up doing this.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, So, this project started as my PhD dissertation at Harvard University, where I was working with Andrew Gordon and Akira Irie. uh, And what got me really started on this project, which, of course, is about the 1960 UMPO protests in Japan against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, uh, was when I first read about these protests. And, of course, these protests were massive, arguably the largest pro- popular protests in Japanese history. Uh, so they come up all the time in, in passing in all kinds of secondary literature. Uh, and when I first encountered these, probably as an undergrad, I uh, I was shocked at the size and scope of these protests. Millions of people across Japan taking part in various types of protest activity over more than a year from 1959 to 1960. And when you go to Japan today and walk on the streets of Tokyo or another large city um, in mainland Japan, it's really hard to even imagine uh, protests of that kind of scale and intensity occurring in present-day Japan. Of course, the glaring exception uh, being Okinawa, where uh, anti-U.S. protests are still quite common, uh, relatively speaking. So I really was just personally curious to understand how these protests came about, how they became so large, and how we got to where we are today, uh, where such massive protests seem not very likely in the Japan of the present era. Uh, and maybe that's starting to change a little bit. We've seen some um, larger protests in recent years against this uh, security bill that Prime Minister Abe passed a few years back. Uh, some anti-nuclear protests in the wake of the 2011 disasters. But uh, at least at the start of the, my project, my personal journey, uh, those things were still in the future. Uh, And so I really wanted to understand how we got from then, 1960, to now, um, the early 21st century, uh, and what changes occurred in between um, to make this kind of massive protest seem less and less likely over time. Uh, And, of course, you can't really cover all those five or six decades in one book. uh, And so I really looked at the immediate aftermath of the protests, in the early 1960s, uh, to see what started to change and what transformations were already taking place um, right in the, the first several years after these protests.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I think that this is this is really interesting for me because I think it, it leads very nicely into, um, you know, what what... I was trying to uh, figure out exactly you know, what is what is the main argument here, and I think this re- leads really nicely into that, um, which is you're feeling that 1960 represents this kind of moment of, of you know sort of a, a, a seismic shift, a sort of existential moment for Japan. Um, and I actually thought one of the most provocative things you said, and I wonder if you could if we could sort of start here, is uh, Japanese historians talk a lot about the 1955 system. Um, But you make the suggestion that that sort of common sense interpretation uh, needs to be reexamined, and maybe it's better to think about an Ampo system. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the 1955 system is um, and – or what it's generally conceived to be, and then uh, why you think that that's maybe not the right way to think about it, and, and what you think would be a better way to consider uh, the post-war history of Japan.
0: Sure, yeah, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there and got sort of to the core of the argument that I present in this book. Uh, I'm really trying to understand post-war and contemporary Japanese history in a more holistic manner. Uh which would mean integrating cultural history, social history, and political history. And the 1955 system, which as you mentioned, is um, widely talked about in terms of Japanese political history, uh, refers to the unification of the conservative uh, liberal party and democratic party in 1955 to form the liberal democratic party. Uh, And then The corresponding unification in response to that of the left and right halves of the Socialist Party, the Japan Socialist Party had had an earlier schism, uh, and they were so fearful of this united Conservative Party that they were forced to reunite in a kind of unhappy marriage in 1955 in reaction to that. And so... uh, just thinking purely in terms of political parties and literally the names of the political parties and when they start, people felt it was convenient to call this the 1955 system. And why is it a system? Well, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party went on to rule almost continuously with a couple of very short um, breaks from 1955 until now. So just in in sort of looking at it from a superficial level of the names of the parties and and the party that happened to be in charge for a long time. It seemed like 1955 was uh, a big turning point. But what I'm trying to do in my book is uh, think more holistically, not just in terms of political parties, but in terms of what's going on in Japanese society. And uh, a lot of the changes that I'm charting in this book, uh, they start in, in the aftermath of these huge protests in 1960. And so uh, the, the sort of Unified picture of what's going on doesn't really make sense uh, if you start in 1955. Uh, the 50s, as I argue in the book, uh, were a decade of increasingly uh, vitriolic and intense clashes between left and right in Japan over the future of Japan as a nation, what kind of direction it was going to take on the international scene, but also domestically, um, especially within the context of the global Cold War. And this conflict just keeps escalating over the course of n- the 1950s and culminates, I argue, in these massive protests in 1960. Uh, and sort of start the story of what Japanese society is going to look like after this massive protest movement in 1960, in 1955, um, when things are still escalating and ramping up, uh, doesn't make so much sense. And so I think we need to move the uh turning point in post war Japanese history forward a few years uh to the aftermath of these protests. Th-
1: that that's not only I think a great summary of, of sort of what I what I also saw as as the argument, I think that was really clear. But it also um you, you touched on the fact that you're trying to do this more sort of holistic history in which you're integrating political and and socioeconomic and cultural histories. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting um contribution to the way that we think about you know post-war Japan as as you know, as a system in that sense. So, Nick, I think um, that the – it seemed to me the book was sort of split into more or less um, two two sections uh, in which the the first section you really talk about the political uh, fallout of the uh, 1960 protests. And then in the second half of the book, you sort of shift gears and really get into that much more holistic uh, view of the uh, fallout from 1960. So, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the – the first half of the book um which is the the political changes um, you start off in chapter one talking about the uh, change in Japan's international position, particularly the U.S.-Japan relationship. Um, and I loved what you said, you know, right up at the be- at the at the opening of this. You say that um, U.S.-Japan relations during the Kennedy and Ikeda administrations in the nineteen sixties um, have been largely ignored, thanks to a perception that nothing of great import happened between the two nations in the early sixties. But you are pushing back pretty strongly on this. So I wonder if you could tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so chapter one is really a revisionist history of U.S.-Japan relations uh, in the first half of the 1960s during the John F. Kennedy and Ikeda Hayato administrations. And as you just quoted, uh, the prevailing historiography of this before my book has really been that nothing much happened. Uh, So, of course, you do have some reaction to these massive protests, which were widely perceived as having an anti-American character. Uh, And so John F. Kennedy takes over as the U.S. president. One of the first things he does is he sends uh, Edwin O. Reischauer, a Harvard University professor of Japanese studies, to Japan as the U.S. ambassador to Japan. And this was an interesting move because typically in the past, the United States had sent career diplomats to Japan, uh, and Japan had been seen as a plum posting. uh, And so a lot of these career diplomats in the State Department sort of worked their whole career hoping to land such a posting as Japan and were kind of annoyed uh, when this academic was sent instead. Uh, but this was a move by the Kennedy administration to send somebody who had local expertise, a previous diplomats sent to Japan, didn't even necessarily know Japanese. Reishawa knew Japanese. He was married to a Japanese woman. Uh, and so this was uh, a move that made waves at the time. And Later historians have recognized that this was an attempt to soothe over h- hard feelings uh, in Japan toward the United States. But this has mostly been portrayed as largely symbolic or um, anything that Reischauer said was just rhetorical. Reischauer famously talked constantly of creating an equal partnership between Japan and the United States, implying that what had come before was less than equal Uh but political scientists pointed out that the relationship remained unequal in many ways. Uh, and uh, others pointed out that Eisenhower had spent a lot of effort to try to um, connect with Japan. And so this moment in U.S.-Japan hit relations and, and the history of that relationship was, for the most part, Skipped over in textbooks on the history of u s japan relations, or it got uh, at most a few paragraphs um, and then people sort of jumped ahead and and there are s- certain canonical events in the history of u s japan relations that you pretty much always have to mention, and there are a lot of those in the 50s so uh, of course there 's the peace treaty that ends the war between the United States and Japan in um, that's officially comes into effect in 1952 after a conference in San Francisco in 1951. Um, there's a variety of, of anti-base protests in Japan. There's the Lucky Dragon incident, uh, in the mid 1950s when a U.S. nuclear test, uh, leads to fallout that lands on a Japanese fishing boat and they all get sick and and one of the fishermen died. Uh, And so that started a large anti-nuclear movement in Japan. Um, There's a a variety of other incidents. In 1957, um, a U.S. soldier named uh, William Gerard shoots a woman a Japanese woman um, collecting scrap metal on a Japanese military base. And so the typical history of U.S.-Japan relations tends to go through all these events in the 50s uh, and then, of course, mentions the huge protests in 1960, maybe says something about Ambassador Reichauer getting sent over, and then sort of skips ahead uh, until... 1969 even um, the Okinawan reversion in which uh, the United States ceded control of Okinawa back to Japan although they kept large amounts of it to this day for military bases and then into the 1970s where you have another series of events between the US and Japan uh, and so the almost the whole decade of the 60s tends to get skipped over and so what I was trying to do in chapter 1 is rethink what actually happened during uh, the Kennedy and Ikeda administrations. Uh, And, you know, looking at government documents, I think I was able to show rather convincingly that in addition to the rhetoric of equal partnership, serious efforts were made to actually make the partnership more equal. Um, And in particular, uh, the Kennedy administration at Reichauer's urging really took steps to treat Japan as an ally rather than as a sort of uh, subordinate dependent client state. Uh, And so there was a rhetorical move to do so, but also an attempt to do so in actuality. And so President Kennedy actually started sending secret messages to Prime Minister Ikeda uh, before he announced... um, major announcements relating to US foreign policy um, and the Cold War policies toward the Soviet Union. Uh, So for example, prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, he sent a notification to Ikeda um, telling Ikeda in advance that he was going to um, make this announcement to the world about the missiles in Cuba. And he did this uh, at a variety of other junctures as well. And so this really started a pattern of uh, informing Japanese leaders in advance uh, before making announcements. And this was the kind of treatment that the U.S. was giving to uh, close allies at the time, such as Great Britain. And so Japan was brought into uh, this Cold War battle as a much more um, equal standing, uh, more like an ally than a client state.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I think this I, I think that's a, a really important reframing, because as you point out, we, we talk about the, the 50s as being very political um, and the 70s as being political again. But the 60s seems, you know, other than the ample protests in 1960 itself, it's so depoliticized in the way that we talk about it. And I think uh, it's a really good introduction to uh, sort of what the first half of your book is trying to do is bring back that political narrative, right? I mean, we, we talk about the you know Olympics, we talk about the Shinkansen, we talk about GDP, and sort of all of the the economics, and we talk about the the social transformations. Um, but, but they're taken out of that political context too, which so this is I think one of the nice things that you're doing in this you know holistic way about the uh, in the book um to bring those together um but in but the first half of the book is as we've said you know is really about what happens politically and so i wonder if we could uh move on to chapter two because in chapter two you're moving uh away from the international situation and getting into the domestic um and chapter two is about um the uh stabilization of conservative rule um and in many ways, that's about the collapse. Uh, in Chapter 3, you talk about the, the, the collapse of the opposition. But in Chapter 2, you're talking about the firming up of the majority, um, the challenges at home, uh, the response to those challenges um, in the 1960s. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the Prime Minister, Ikeda Hayato, who's sort of the, the protagonist of this chapter and the challenges that he faced and how he dealt with them domestically.
0: Yeah, so that's a a good place to start. This was he faced a lot of challenges, and this gets back to your earlier question about why should we call this uh, Ampo system or 1960 system instead of a 1955 system? Uh, and I think the crucial starting point for chapter two is the fact that these huge protests were a disaster for the ruling party, the the Liberal Democratic Party, the Conservative Party that was in power. Uh, Of course, uh, in a sense, these protests are often seen as a failure, a failed protest, especially by people on the left, because their stated goal was to prevent the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty and end the U.S.-Japan Military Alliance. And obviously, that didn't work out. We still, of course, the United States still has military troops on Japanese soil to this day. Uh, But they were a success from the the perspective of the left in that they brought down the government of this hated Prime Minister Kishi Nobusuke, um, who had a long and sordid history. He'd served in the Tojo Hideki cabinet in World War II. Uh, he'd been a bureaucrat in the Japanese colony of Manchuria. He was indicted after the war as a class A war criminal and only escaped uh, prosecution because there was a reverse course in the in U.S. occupation policy, and he was depurged and let back into government and had this sort of comeback. And took him 10 years, but he rose to become prime minister of Japan. But people were always suspicious of Kishi uh, on the left, especially, but also in in the center and on the right as well, that he had this war criminal past. And was he really going to take Japan back to some kind of pre-war system? And so he was a, a real hated figure by many people in Japan. And he's forced to resign as a result of these protests, uh, And then the humiliation that accompanies his resignation is only magnified by the fact that he has to humiliatingly call off a planned visit by President Dwight D. Eisenhower um, that would have taken place in late June of 1960 on account of the massive protests. But of course, uh, that visit had to be called off as a result of these massive protests. And so you have the double disaster for the Liberal Democratic Party, the Prime Minister, the whole cabinet has to resign, uh, and this this planned visit by the U.S. president is called off. And then, in the aftermath of that, the Liberal Democratic Party itself really almost comes apart. uh, Various opposition factions in the party, in the summer of 1960, make plans to split off from the party uh, at the height of the protests when they had forced the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty through the Japanese National Legislature. several members of the ruling party had absented themselves from the vote because they were so angry at Prime Minister Kishi. And so you have all these schismatic forces within the Liberal Democratic Party. And so when Ikeda Hayato takes over uh, in July of 1960, he's facing a party that's on the verge of falling apart. And so he has to figure out a way to get this party back together and get the country back together after this very divisive protest movement. And it was interesting that you mentioned how the 1960s have been often portrayed in historiography as not a very political era. And I think in a way that speaks to the triumph and the success of Ikeda's strategy, the solution he comes up with to try to address these various serious problems, uh, which is to purposely um, try to turn the country and turn the national discourse away from politics towards economics, toward the Olympics, which is a big part of this plan, um, and get everyone back on the same page, focused around something that's not very political or perceived as um, not so political. And what he hits upon is economic growth. And so this is um, the reason that he announces with great fanfare in the fall of 1960, immediately after these protests and uh, the income doubling plan, right, which is sort of Japan's version of the John F. Kennedy moonshot that we're going to put a man on the moon. Um, Within 10 years, Ikeda says we're going to double Japan's uh, GDP, Within 10 years, and which will, um, and he put it in terms of of income, your salary, that your salary is going to be doubled because the nation's GDP is going to be doubled by 1970. And of course, Japan succeeds ahead of schedule. It only takes them seven years, not 10 years, to double the size of the national economy. Uh, And so Ikeda really works hard to rally people around these economic goals and sort of let's not pay attention anymore to these divisive political problems where Japan's going to be within the cold war international structure. Uh, Let's focus on economic growth. Uh, And this has a long legacy. Even today um, there's real unity in Japan around a lot of questions relating to economics that Japan should be an an economic superpower. People on the left and right have subscribed to this idea. Uh, And of course, Ikeda also, uh, you know, is really taking advantage of an economic growth process that's already happening at the time. And so uh, historians have tended to discount the income doubling plan, again, sort of like with Reichauer's appointment as ambassadors, merely rhetorical, right? Right. Um, that he's sort of claiming credit for something that's already happening. Uh, Japan has tremendous post-war economic growth starting in the 50s, and so is he really doing anything different? But I argue in the chapter that Ikeda had a real insight here. Uh, He recognized what was happening, uh, and then he was able to turn that into a propaganda victory uh, that maybe is still affecting how historians describe this era to this day, as you point out. and I, I go through and I show how other people at the time were not so confident that Japan would be able to meet these targets. And so Ikeda and his advisors really um, had some insight that people at the time did not necessarily have.
1: Yeah, and I think this uh, that really leads us very nicely into what you're doing in chapter three, where you're talking about the collapse of the political resistance to Ikeda. But I think it's also important. We've been having this this Nice back and forth about the, the collapse of the sort of politicization, sort of more more generally of the era, and at least the historical memory of it. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar, uh, Oguma Eiji has talked about this idea of the 1970 paradigm, where he's sort of locating that, you know, by 1970, when the second round of, of protests Um, Fail, uh, then this sort of plan that Ikeda has put, you know, Ikeda and the LDP have put in motion of depoliticizing economic growth, and essentially, if you you know get out of the universities and you know get out of uh, get out of the university protests and get out of you know protesting on the streets, we promise you endless economic growth and full lifetime employment. You know. Oguma is locating that at 1970, but I really like how you're sort of pulling that back into the process that's going on through the whole decade of the 1960s. And I think an important part of that process, as you point out in chapter three, is the waning of the opposition parties, which is the title of the chapter. So if you could talk about um, how that fits into this larger picture that you're portraying here, I'd, uh, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, so of course you have... Both sides, left and right, are faced with essentially the same problem, which is um, schismatic forces within these political parties. I already mentioned how the Socialist Party had this unhappy marriage between left and right. But the LDP, the ruling Conservative Party, had an unhappy marriage, in a sense, between eight competing factions. And these factions were united around their sort of personality cults uh, formed around individual politicians and their their sort of local network of supporters. And these were ties of personal loyalty that had very little to do, if anything, with actual policy positions. And so in the LDP, people didn't really disagree on policy per se. It was just they had these factional rivalries and and personal animosities between um, different factions. And it was a a marriage of convenience to hold power. uh, And they had a lot of tension between these factions, which almost led to a splitting up of the party. And so these protests are exacerbating these tensions within the LDP. Similarly, they exacerbate the tensions within um, the factions on the left and the left uh, political parties. uh, And these have to do with how should the left conduct these protests? Now, the difference between the left and the right is that the the parties on the left, the factions actually not only have all the same personal private animosities between different political factions within political parties, but they also have real policy disagreements. And so when they're trying to all team up together to conduct these protests in 1960, there are increasingly severe disagreements over what kind of protests should these be? Should we stick to a more doctrinaire Marxist ideology and make this into a socialist revolution? Should we try to make it a more broad-based movement and make alliances with others who may not be as committed to socialist revolution as we are? Um, And it it goes down this rabbit hole of these doctrinal debates, and actually the Socialist Party re-splits in the middle of the protests into this japan socialist party and the democratic socialist party and so they actually split in half um the ldp almost did that but the socialist party actually um splits in half and then you have um an ongoing process of of schisms within the Socialist Party, also within the the Communist Party as well, in the aftermath of these protests, as they argue over why the protests failed and who was to blame and what they should have done differently. Uh, And Ikeda is able to capitalize on this as he's trying to shift the conversation to economic growth. Uh, He's able to portray these opposition parties as hopelessly out of touch. uh, And he's able to make the promise that the rising tide is going to lift all boats, that economic prosperity is going to come for everyone. Um, And so no need for a socialist revolution. Uh, Why don't you come over and support a more mainstream big tent party that he was able to mold the LDP into? And so he really solidified uh, the LDP's rule. And then these left-wing parties uh, increasingly became more and more relevant. I should add that another step that Ikeda took to really take the wind out of the sails of the Socialist Party in particular was that he explicitly disavowed any attempt in the future by the Liberal Democratic Party to revise Article 9 of the post-war Japanese Constitution, which is, of course, uh, the article that permanently and forever renounces war or war-making capacity on the part of the Japanese state. Uh, And so this was a clause put in the Constitution by the United States when they were sort of handing Japan its new constitution in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, And this Article 9 had been a source of intense uh, disagreement in the 1950s. So conservatives had been pushing very strongly to get rid of this article and um, revive some type of military power for Japan. Uh, And in fact, Prime Minister Kishi, this hated prime minister who had to step down after the protests, had established a special committee to investigate how to get rid of Article 9. And so the LDP had really put its foot down or or put a, a line in the sand that it was going to revise Article 9. Now, the process for revising the Japanese Constitution requires a two-thirds majority in uh, the Japanese diet, the national legislature. And so the Socialist Party was able to make a lot of hay out of this for anyone who favored uh, keeping Article 9, that uh, as long as they could keep a one-third level in the diet they could prevent that revision
1: yeah um and so i think that it, it's this this takes us back actually to something i wanted to mention when we were talking about kishi is of course he's the grandfather of the current prime minister uh, abe shinzo who also has uh article nine in his sites um and so it's this is a you know an interesting um thing where you're sort of in some ways, seeing a breakdown of this uh, Ampo system, w- which which you've talked about its great influence, um, you know, in, in the the sort of post war period, um, but of course. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because in chapter four, what you're talking about is the other part of, uh, the breakdown of, uh, resistance to the, uh, growthist sort of policies of the LDP and the attempt to, uh, prioritize growth and depoliticize, uh, the sort of political economy, I guess, of of Japan. Um, And that's uh, what you call the collapse of the 1960 uh, coalition. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the 1960 coalition? um, And also uh, tell us uh, how that, if you can, how that relates to uh, the waning of the opposition parties.
0: Yeah. So the 1960 protests were carried out by a broad center-left coalition of a extremely wide variety of uh, political parties and various civic organizations uh, of all different types. So you had, uh, of course, the left-wing political parties, you had uh, the left-wing labor unions, which was most of the labor unions at the time, uh, you had a variety of anti-war groups, you had mothers groups, women's groups, um, child protection groups, uh, various types of um, proto-environmentalist groups, uh, anti-nuclear bomb groups, um, even some business and farmers cooperatives. And so you had um, you know, more than 100 of these groups nationwide, and they all come together uh, in this overarching umbrella organization to oppose the revision of the security treaty starting in, in 59, and that, that goes into 1960. And this structure is very successful. So they're able to... Uh, through this pyramid organization that reaches all the way down to the lowest levels of these various organizations, mobilize very large-scale protests. Uh, and these groups had gradually gotten l- larger and more organized over the course of the struggles of the 1950s, and so in that sense, 1960 was really the culmination of this long experience of pro- center-left protests over the course of the 1950s that climaxes with the, the largest protest in 1960. Uh, and so this is the coalition that I'm talking about in that chapter 4 uh, that served as the backbone of these protests. And so if we're asking the question, why don't we have such massive, large-scale protests after 1960? Well, the answer becomes that this coalition completely falls apart. And not only do these groups have conflicts and schisms between each other. So after 1960, over the course of the protests, they they come to disagree about what the protests are actually about. Uh, but within almost every single one of these constituent groups within the coalition, there's schisms and the groups split. Uh, so even the Nihon Haha'oya Taika, this Japan Mothers Society, which you would think, Um, Is not so political, but they split into two versions, and and one's backed by um, a certain left wing faction, and others backed by a different faction. Uh, And so all these groups start splitting up. And so in chapter four, I was looking at some examples of this. Uh, And so in particular, I was looking at um, how the labor movement really retreats uh, from militant political action in favor of um, a more narrowly focused workplace action, uh, and they they sort of give up political strikes. uh, And Ikeda really um, tries to woo them over to his side and uh, with concessions on wages to get them to stop being so involved in politics. And then you have the student movement, which I think is sort of my example of the internal schisms within these organizations, where um, you had this large uh, student organization nationwide at all the colleges and universities called Zengakuren, which heads into the 1960 protests, very united and powerful, uh, and comes out of it already split into three or four factions, and then it further splits into 30 or 40 tiny sub-factions over the course of the 1960s, and is never going to be able to be so powerful ever again. And then lastly, in that chapter, I look at uh, these progressive intellectuals who had really given a sort of patina of um, intellectualism to these protests and how they also uh, are become disillusioned and have fights about what the protests actually meant. And uh, most of the most prominent intellectuals who had supported the protests retreat from political activism over the course of the 1960s. Uh, And so this uh, tells us something about the broader depoliticization of Japanese society. It's not just these intellectuals, of course. A lot of uh, ordinary people or labor unionists or workers or members of these coalition groups are also retreating from political activism or giving up or, or feeling disillusioned and upset that the protests failed to stop the treaty Uh, And so you have the rise of people calling themselves non-political in the 1960s or non-pori in Japanese. Um, They say I'm not political anymore. Uh, And then in the last part of that chapter, I actually looked at some um, people, a a sort of younger generation of people who were... um, on the contrary, not depoliticized, but actually politicized by the protests. So you have really a tale of two generations. And this sort of leads into Chapter 5, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, for an older generation who had been active throughout the 1950s, uh, fighting against the right and what they saw as a return to the pre-war system and pre-war militarism by this hated Prime Minister Kishi and the LDP, uh, they feel the protests are a total failure, and so they sort of give up. They have this sense of everyone talks about zasetsu, right? This sense of failure, uh, and so they turn away from political activism. But but for a younger generation, so high school students, undergraduates, this was their first chance to participate in protest activity, and it was such a large-scale protest that this was very exciting for them, and they felt very energized, uh, and they carried forward this activism into the rest of the 1960s. Uh, So I look at that in Chapter 4 as well, so I don't want to just present a sad story of collapse and and schisms, but I also wanted to say, look, there were these other people who were very excited by these protests, and in particular, um, women felt uh, very energized by the 1960 protests. For many women, it was the first chance that they ever had to march in the streets uh, in protest of something because um, previously women had not, almost never been allowed to do that, if ever. Uh, And so there's a direct line that a lot of uh, women's rights activists, women's liberation activists draw between their activity in the later 1960s and in the 1970s, straight back to 1960. Uh, And so I kind of took them at their word that this was very exciting for them. And I presented some evidence uh, of how these protests really helped women get started uh, with political activism. And then, of course, uh, the other groups also, there's residence movements that arise out of Uh, the 1960 movement, there's an environmental movement that arises out of it. But these movements are going to have to take different forms that cannot be so explicitly political. Because in this new depoliticized rhetoric of the 1960s, you're going to have to find another way to justify um, why you're engaging in political activism. So it's going to be more focused around your apartment block, or it's going to be gendered in female terms that seem less threatening, or it's going to have to be an environmental movement um, that focuses very much on local consequences and is not going to engage um, with these hot button issues um, that have been so divisive in the early 1960s.
1: And so you said in this chapter that, you know, by the middle of the 1960s, that that big coalition collapses. But, you know, as as you're pointing out here, um, this sort of opened up the way for new types of social movements in Japan. And the other thing you talk about is opening up. The title of chapter five, New Directions in Literature and the Arts. So I'd like to uh, move on to that, which I think really begins a a major shift, uh, a new direction in your book as well, right, which is getting away from this uh, repoliticization, the political narrative um, and talks about. Uh, the literature, uh, the arts sort of gets into the second half of the book here. Um, So you talk about new directions, uh, major movements, works, and artists. I'd like to sort of talk about those, Um, but you're talking not uh, about, not a sort of epistemological break, but the acceleration of some existing tendencies that were also there and the sort of um, connect, you know, the, both continuity and discontinuity in literature and the arts. And so I wonder if you could just sort of give us a picture of what was going on in the 1960s.
0: In the 1960s, specifically right around the year 1960, right around when these protests happened, you have an explosion of all kinds of new directions and new genres in the arts, in literature, um, in um, every genre. So there's a, a new school of photography, there's new types of modern dance there's new types of theater, there's new types of visual art, there's new types of literature that are appearing on the scene. And so is it just coincidence that we have all these uh, new types of art and literature and personal expression all of a sudden uh, in 1960? Now, of course, if you go back into the 50s, you can see it's not as sudden of a break. As you alluded, this is not a total rupture or a total epistemological change. Uh, But a lot of the artists themselves really describe 1960 as a rupture. And a lot of uh, literature specialists or art historians have looked back and seen a a moment of rupture. I'm a little skeptical of that. I I don't think, I don't want to portray it as a total um, rupture. Uh, I do think these trends were already visible in the late 1950s, but Uh, You use the word acceleration, and that's the word I like to use as well, so that you start to see some shifts in the late 1950s, and these protests happen, and then these shifts are suddenly accelerated uh, onto a fast track to a new type of art. And so the the type of art and literature that we're seeing right away uh, in the very early 1960s, uh, already by the end of the year 1960, in fact, uh, is quite recognizably different from what we'd been seeing uh, just a year before, or uh, two years before, uh, and across all different genres. And what allows this to happen, I argue, is that basically all of these artists and thespians and writers uh, got wrapped up in these protests. And they were out in the streets. Um, they were part of this coalition as part of their um, troops or they had their own organizations of uh, theater artists or writers or visual artists. And so they're marching in the streets. Uh, and so uh, this is where I, I'm i trying to get at more of the holistic picture. Uh, I know you you argued that maybe there's two halves of my book, but I really see this as um, sort of the same sort of schisms that I'm talking about in the previous couple chapters are also happening within all these art groups as well. The same sort of debates, uh, were the protests a success or a failure? Well, we didn't stop the treaties, so they were a failure, but other people feel, no, but we got rid of Kishi, so they were a success. Um, how should we behave in the future? Um, these are also percolating and within these, these uh, artistic societies. And you have the same... Um, Different differing reaction between the two generations, the older generation uh, who's maybe more disappointed and the younger generation who's more excited. Uh, Now, there's a backstory to this, which is that in post-war Japan, in the late 40s and 50s, right after the war, all of these artistic genres and literature are really dominated by the Communist Party uh, to an extent that's really hard to square with the actual numbers of artists who say they're members of the communist party. I mean, it's a lot, but um, even then, um, a lot of artists are not members of the communist party, but the communist party has this outsized influence because a lot of the leading lights, the most famous artists and writers are members uh, and they have control over the artistic societies, which tend to be very hierarchical. And so they enforce on the art world and the literature world uh, a vision of what art and literature should be, which is that it should be subordinated to politics and, in particular, um, the politics of the Communist Party. So all art and literature should support the goal of fomenting a socialist revolution in Japan. And so the upshot of that is that you have an awful lot of socialist realism, writing, and art-produced in the 1950s. And it does get a little weaker over the course of the 1950s, but even right on the eve of these uh, security treaty protests in 1959, it's it's still remaining quite strong and, and very much the mainstream. Uh, and, and people are not quite able to break free of that. But over the course of these protests, as all these artists get involved, they get really angry with the Communist Party because the Communist Party decides... Over the course of these protests, that they are going to be as peaceful as possible, and they're going to—they ha- have this policy called passive dispersal. So they're not going to battle with police; um, they're going to participate, but they're not going to escalate anything. They're going to be as peaceful as possible. This has to do with the a longer history of the Communist Party itself and some of their own missteps in the 1950s. Uh, But a lot of these artists felt, well, this was our chance to have a a socialist revolution or a communist revolution, and the Communist Party is copping out. And so they get really angry, and this inspires a lot of them to break free of this socialist, realist orthodoxy. Uh, And and as I alluded to, you have this generational gap. So the older generation who'd really invested in socialist realism, uh, they sort of give up on it. And so they turn away from it. But the younger generation who was just starting to come to the fore around 1960, uh, they were feeling the oppressive pressure to conform to this certain type of art or literature. And so they're excited by the protest. This is their chance to break free from it. Uh, And so you end up with both generations turning away um, from socialist realism and going in uh, a much more personal and depoliticized direction.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for um, also for in addition to 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 giving a great sort of summary of the chapter. Also for pushing back on on my uh, interpretation of the sort of two halves of the book. Um, So in In chapter six, which is the the, the last chapter, uh, you talk about um, another kind sort of another aspect of the of what you call in chapter six the landscape of expression. Um, it, the chapter is reshaping the landscape of expression. Um, so you know you have the in chapter five uh, literature and the arts and you talk about the visual arts, you talk about theater, you talk about literature. Um, and here in that same kind of, and I think this is a very provocative term landscape of expression, Uh, you talk about the courts, the police, the mass media, um, and the Yakuza and other right-wing groups and sort of how, uh, in the, in a sense, conservative backlash, um, and the changed discursive field, the field of possible expression in a post-Ampo, uh, world or an Ampo order. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this chapter and, and also about how, um, I'm just—I'm really curious personally. Like uh, this—this seems—it seemed—it kind of took me off guard. This chapter, right? I mean, it—it it, uh, it was the chapter that surprised me most, um, and I found it a very pleasant surprise. Um, so I'm curious, sort of, how you got into uh, the, the the idea of of doing this particular chapter, in particular, just sort of uh, to to round things off as the last chapter.
0: Okay. Well. Can I start by asking
1: you what in particular? Um, you found surprising, I, I, surprising about in the, the sense champion. that um, I, I was surprised to see uh, the uh, the attention to uh, the courts, uh, the police. Um, and the Yakuza, I, I, I wasn't, I guess, surprised. But you even know, thinking about the mass media, I guess that was something that I was kind of expecting as I was reading through the book was, OK, we've talked about the politicians. OK, we've talked about uh, the students. We've talked about labor. We've talked about the artists. Um, and I kind of felt like, OK, mass media must be in here somewhere. But I was really in, I, I just thought this was a very uh, clever thing that you've done here to bring in uh, the courts, the police and the sort of far right in Japan um, into this landscape of experience.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting because uh, if you think back to what I talked about at the beginning, the reason I started this research was because I was driven by this question of how did we get from 1960 to where we are 50 or 60 years later from these huge, massive protests where I estimate in the introduction that at least 30 million people participated in some kind of protest activity uh, to where we are later on where we don't see very large scale protests in Japan. That was the driving question. Uh, and so I was just r- casting my net widely and trying to understand this question and its possible answers from as many perspectives as possible. So I knew I wanted to look at US Japan relations and Japanese domestic politics, these social movements, the labor movement, the students, the intellectuals, the artists. Uh, these were sort of the actors. In the protests themselves, uh, who were actually either out in the streets or um, opposing the protests. Uh, But then I had these other groups that I wanted to look at. You mentioned the media, um, but I wanted to look at right wing groups because... As I described in the introduction, these right-wing groups actually go out into the streets at the height of the protests and attack the left-wing protesters. So where did these guys come from and what were they thinking? Um, The media was covering it and was blamed by both sides for exacerbating the protests. So what was their perspective? And then um, the police keep showing up again and again, whether they're um, fighting with the protests directly or... um, trying to uh, prevent right wingers from doing damage and so I had to decide was this going to be you know four separate chapters on the, the courts the police the media and the right wing uh, so I ended up finding this common thread of freedom of expression so you have all four of these groups uh, in the end not entirely a conspiracy but conspiring together, If only unwittingly, to as you described it, uh, drastically circumscribe, um, in my view, uh, the landscape of acceptable expression. And I use that landscape word in a double sense. So there's a a sort of metaphorical landscape of expression, you know, where are the hills and valleys that you're allowed to go in terms of what you're allowed to say um, about uh, the emperor in particular, uh, but also. The physical landscape. Uh, And so Tokyo, they're remodeling and renovating and upgrading Tokyo in anticipation of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. And I argue this is an opportunity that the government takes to really close down the wide open public spaces in Tokyo in particular, which was often the center of these um, protests. And they do it in, in other cities later on, following the Tokyo model. So if you look at pictures from the 1950s of big train stations in Tokyo, Shinjuku, Shibuya, um, there's really broad open spaces where they had streetcars pulling in and out. uh, And these are really chopped up and subdivided. Uh, And then there were other plazas that are cut by highways. And so they really closed down public space. and, And just give people a lot less space to have large street protests Uh, in front of the diet. They put a huge median in the middle of the big road where all the protesters uh, went before. And of course put police every 10 meters, which are still there today uh, to keep people away from the diet. And so they're closing down physical space. Uh, And then of course the courts um, have a series of decisions in which they basically make it, um, Illegal to publicly protest without the permission of the police. The police developed new tactics to close down and and defeat um, various types of protest marches that had been designed to occupy public space. Uh, The right wing, I argue, in this chapter really comes out into public view again in a way that they had not been. uh, In the first 15 years of the post-war period, there had been a sort of stigma against ultra-rightism In the wake of this failed war, understandably. Uh, But the right wing really panics in 1960 that maybe this is a communist revolution and we need to uh, come out again in public and fight against it. And so they're emboldened and empowered, and donations flow into their coffers. A lot of new right wing groups are formed, and uh, they're emboldened to such an extent that in, in the rest of the 1960s, you have a series of Um, attempted assassinations, uh, most famously a successful assassination in the fall of 1960 against the chairman of the Socialist Party, Asanuma Inejiro. There's this incredible photograph, which I have in my book, of him being assassinated on live TV by a um, sword-wielding right-wing youth. Uh, But you have a variety of other um, stabbings in particular that recalled a wave of assassinations in the 1930s by the right in the pre-war period, Uh, so the right wing really comes back into public view and is still in public view to this day. Um, so getting back to the question of, you know, this Ampo system and and what we're still living with nowadays, uh, you know, public holidays, you see the, the right wing noise trucks on every corner. Um, and so they've remained in, in public view ever since. And then, uh, sort of at the core of this chapter is my analysis of the mass media and really how you have a push and a pull. So the government, of course, is trying to um, make the media tone down um, its anti-government rhetoric, and they they use advertisers and um, access journalism that, as a carrot to uh, promote more favorable coverage, uh, and advertisers are able to put pressure um companies who tend to be conservative, large corporations band together to um, make use of their advertising clout to get the kind of political coverage or lack thereof that they would prefer. Uh, But then also a real soul searching on the part of uh, ostensibly left-leaning media. I I focused especially on the Asahi Shimbun because that's perceived as being the most left of the major newspapers where they do this hansei, this self-criticism or self-reflection, and decide that they're just going to proactively do more self-censorship. And they sort of openly um, talk about this, at least internally, that, that we need to um, not fan the flames of protests. We need to um, act in the service of social stability. And so I, I go through the process by which these newspapers went from a stance uh, at the beginning of the protest, that their job, main job was to speak truth to power to a stance at the end of the protest that they should uh, focus on social stability.
1: Yeah, I think that that point about the uh Asahi really rings true to me and especially the the vocabulary that you use there, you know, with the the Japanese word hansei which is often a little bit difficult to uh render into useful English. Um one of I jokingly have uh called hansei the, you know, the sort of the post Um and I think that's, you know, in an interesting way it, it fits into the the way that you're using it here, right? This sort of uh the attenuation of any sense of, you know, that sort of open confrontational style of extra parliamentary um, protest against the the growthism against the sort of mainstreamed um, uh, conservative agenda. Um, and so I think that's a really nice way for us actually to uh, wrap up today. Um, I want to thank you for uh, spending the time with us. Um, and I'd, just in closing, I'd like to ask you uh, what you're up to these days um, with your book out. If, are you resting on your laurels? Do you have a new project you're working on? What's going on? Yeah, thank you so much
0: again for having me on the podcast. And yeah, to answer your final question, uh, I do have a lot of things on the horizon. I'm not just going to rest on my laurels. Uh, It feels really good to have the whole world in front of me. All of a sudden, after working on this book for 10 years, of course, I quite enjoyed the book, but uh, it's very exciting to have the whole world as my oyster, so to speak. Uh, I do have a few smaller articles which are related to this book project or sort of spin-off articles which I'm working on now. Uh, the one that's coming out the soonest is an article I just wrote for uh, Japanese Studies, the journal in Australia, uh, which is a special issue on the 100th anniversary, the centennial of the Meiji Restoration in 1968. Uh, so the government had a celebration, a year-long celebration of the 100 years from Meiji to 1968, and historians in particular became very upset about this, um, and they said this was glorifying the the wartime era, and so they protested against that. And so I wrote an article about that, which is coming out this fall. Uh, I'm also writing an article about the history of the snake dance, which was a particular kind of protest march in Japan, developed in the early post-war period and used increasingly throughout the 50s, and then used an incredible amount during the 1960 treaty protests, where people would link arms and form ranks of, of five or six people, and then uh, careen back and forth across the street like a snake. I actually have an incredible photograph, aerial photograph of this
1: kind of protest march. Yeah, it's one of the most, along with the other photo you mentioned, it's the two most striking photos, I thought, in the whole book, yeah. Democratic
0: National Convention protests... Uh, they tried to do this Japanese protest march, the snake dance, and they even said "washoi, washoi," which is what uh, Japanese people say when they're carrying festival floats and also when they do this snake dance. Uh, but they failed; they weren't able to do it. They weren't able to uh, match their steps the way that Japanese protesters were, and they crashed into each other. But people were watching this protest march on newsreels and on television, and uh, so I, I kind of want to write an article that sort of transnational history of the snake dance, its its rise and fall. Of course, um, it ends up dying out in Japan right after 1960 because it's put on a list of banned protest marches that the police will no longer tolerate. And the police, as I describe in, in the last chapter of my book, develop a, a method of crushing the snake, <laughs> crushing the life out of the snake. Um, so that's on the horizon in the in the more immediate horizon. Uh, longer term, I have a larger book project that I want to work on. And I've already done a a significant amount of research for Um, it's, it's quite a maybe too large project and I might need to narrow it down a bit, but it's on, uh, it would be a history on discourses on suicide and self-sacrifice in modern Japan from the Meiji restoration up to the present. And basically the question that's driving that research is uh, nowadays, um, it's sort of conventional wisdom. Everyone agrees that Japanese people commit far more suicide than other people or they're more willing to or more easily succumb to committing suicide. Uh, and this is in mainstream publications in the West, even to this day, but also in Japan. And so people both in Japan and outside of Japan believe this. Uh, And empirically, I I think it's relatively easy to show that this is not the case, that if anything, Japanese people probably commit less suicide than people in other countries. Uh, And so I'm really interested in the process by which uh, this comes to be Conventional wisdom and how it gets tied up with all these tropes about Japanese culture and the essentialization of Japanese culture, kamikaze, samurai committing um, harakiri or seppuku. Um, but I think this is a really recent process. Uh, and even if you go into the pre-war, um, you can find Japanese government officials who are very proud to say, Um, oh, we Japanese commit less suicide than people in France, for example. Um, And so we have this notion that maybe in the pre-war it was all about sacrificing yourself or committing suicide. But that was really, I think, limited to uh, a military context. And it's more in the post-war that this gets extended to all Japanese people. And so I want to look at the historical process of this change in Japanese self-perception of themselves as as a people who commit suicide, that's where they end up, and then how this is sort of adopted by the West as well.
1: Well, that's thank you so much for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading both articles, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast with the new book uh, in less than 10 years. Um, but again, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and uh, take care. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Nathan.